All right, everybody. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. We finally made it out of Matthew chapter 3. Took us three weeks to get through those last four verses, but we made it. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And the title of this one is simply The Temptation of Jesus. Because you know what we're going to talk about? The Temptation of Jesus. All right, we're really clever. Okay, here's what it says in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. One more word of prayer. Lord, your word opened before us that you moved men to write and that you have sustained and that you provide for us today. Lord, may we live on your word alone. Lord, give us understanding. Lord, I do pray for clarity of thought and mind and speech. And Lord, joy in the preaching of your word. Amen. Okay, the very first point I absolutely have to cover here. Are you ready for like the most profound thing probably to start off with is this is not about us. This is not a passage that is about us. And I have to say that because I am human too. And you know what I do whenever I come to this is I'm like, oh, so the way that I fight temptation is by, by quoting scripture. Okay, then that's, and I've, I've had that temptation too to want to, provide for myself. Y'all, this is not about us at all. Like Matthew is not a biography of Ricky or biography of the human race. This is a biography of Jesus. And so while I do think it is absolutely helpful to understand um, the reality of temptation, the role of trials and tests and temptations in our lives, and some of that will be hit upon, I don't think that that's why Matthew penned this about Jesus was so that you and I can learn how to handle temptation a whole lot better. I think why we have it here is so that we can see, oh, there is something so much grander going on and that this Savior who came for us is so absolutely highly qualified to be our Redeemer and He is so completely, magnificently wonderful and sinless. Like, that's the thrust of it. So you're going to have to kind of like probably detox if you are like me in that, well, where do I fit into this passage, Ricky? Like, what, what do I do with this? Like, we'll get to that in the very end. But the very first point is simply this. It's not about us. If we can just kind of put that to the side and just look at what's going on here and not focus so much on ourselves, but focus much more on Christ, 
then I think that there is a really good, deep, rich understanding that, that I hope is encouraging to us. This passage is really about Jesus, our Redeemer, facing down the devil in the wilderness so that he can prove he is a suitable sacrifice on our behalf. That's what this is about. There's a, a weird thing about humility, that the more you focus on your humility, the more you focus on like yourself, then, then the less your humility actually comes, right? It's whenever we focus on something so much grander than us, that humility is just a byproduct. And that's what I think we need in this passage is to realize that whatever it is that you and I face in life, that trial, that temptation is nothing compared to what our Savior has done. And He swallows it all up in glory. And whenever we see Him and focus on Him and dwell in Him and sing of Him, then all of a sudden we will find that humility is just naturally what happens. Temptation is no longer as tempting whenever we just look at the Savior. Okay, so it's not about us. It's about Jesus, our Redeemer, facing down the devil in the wilderness so that he can prove that he is a suitable sacrifice on our behalf. Therefore, here we go. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. You cannot rush past that point. Like, just, it's right there. Like, why does Jesus go to the wilderness? to be tempted by the devil. But why did he go to the wilderness before that? Because the Spirit of God led him to. Jesus comes up out of the water. The Spirit descends upon him. God proclaims, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And there's this moment that we've like, like exalted in for the last three weeks of everything going on in this one moment. And then that same spirit leads him to the wilderness for one purpose, and it is to be tempted. This is what he's there for. Like, it just blows my mind that the same spirit that overshadowed Mary in chapter 1, verse 20, that the same spirit that descended upon him during his baptism is the same spirit that leads him to the wilderness. And it really confounds my mind because I'm sitting there thinking, okay, God the Father just said, I am so well pleased with my son. And then he sends him to this temptation. I just want to be very clear with verse 1, that even if it confuses us, this is absolutely no accidental meaning, meeting. Jesus goes with a purpose. It's purposed. It's purposeful. This is what the Spirit intended to happen. This is part of Christ's life on our behalf. He knowingly walked in to this temptation because he was led there. He was baptized and he was tempted. He was one like us. If this is kind of confusing, then check this out. Go to Job. Job chapter 1. This is just like another glimpse of of something that brings in the mystery of God's understanding of trials and temptations in our life. Job chapter 1, verse. we're going to start with verse 1, then we're going to jump to verse, verses 6 through 12. But if you're thinking, man, why would God send His Son to be tempted? It says this in Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was, look at this, blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. 
I don't know if that's what could be said of me or if it could even be said of you. Like, but that was Job's reputation. Here is an upright, devout man. Now look at this. In verse 6, this upright, devout man, now watch what happens in verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. You know why Job suffers? Because God pointed him out. God is the one who said to Satan, do you see my servant Job? You can test him, you can try him, and you will find him to be true. There's a whole lot in that passage I know that we could preach on. And there was a whole lot that was deleted, just so you know from the sermon. But what I want you to see is that this, this moment of Jesus going into the wilderness to be tried and tempted... There was another, there's occurrences like that throughout Scripture where, where you see God moving in such a way that it really makes us sit there and go, Lord, what are you doing? David is incited against Israel. David, a man after God's own heart, is incited against Israel, God's nation, and it's actually God's doing. Like there's passages like that throughout Scripture where we don't quite understand what all is going on. But Job suffers because God directs Satan's attention to Job. Jesus is led to the wilderness because the Spirit leads him. And so they're sitting there in this very moment. And you need to understand that throughout it all, God is still sovereign. As Jesus is going into the desert, Jesus is, I'm sorry, God is still sovereign. He still knows everything that is going. He leads his son there. But Scripture also reminds us that God does not tempt and do not accuse God of tempting. But the fact that we are tempted does not mean that God is not sovereign, that God is not present. In fact, what we get from Scripture is that God is always present, even in the temptations and the trials. Our problem is that our, lim- our perspective is too limited. It's too limited. Our perspective is too finite. We can't even see beyond that horizon And yet God has spoken out horizons scattered throughout space that we have not even seen yet. His perspective, His working is so much greater. He knew what He was doing in Job. He knew what He was doing in Jesus. He knows what He's doing with you and I. Whenever there are trials, whenever there are temptations, He knows. He sends Jesus into the desert. I'm going to just keep moving past this part. And what we're going to see is that he goes on trial, Jesus does. He is tempted in ways that you and I never, ever could be because it's not about us. He's tempted on a level that is much greater than us. He had to fast for 40 days and 40 nights to prepare for it. And after the temptations are over, then angels have to come minister to him. 
He goes into the temptation, not as God, because it's really easy for us to go, well, he's God. Of course he can withstand all this temptation. No, he is man. It's a hypostatic, mysterious union of 100% God, 100% man, 100% Jesus. All together, that, that theological math that makes no sense in the Trinity or in Jesus, but he is a man here, and he goes and he endures temptations to the degree that you and I cannot even begin to fathom. When's the last day that we prepared for 40 days of, with 40 days of fasting for the temptations that we knew would be there? And then afterward, all the angels are coming to us. This was an intense moment that we just breezed past. We just kind of go, oh, he, uh, temptation of Jesus. Yeah, I know that one, right? Check that off the reading list. You know, throughout all history, all mankind has fallen into temptations. Some to a great degree, some to a lesser if you read all the Bible, you read all of history, you'll read all the history of failing mankind. Hero after hero fails. Israel fails. Moses fails. David fails. Abraham fails. Job fails. Peter fails. Every single one of us fails. Except for Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer. He never sinned. It's amazing. That is an amazing thing. Hear this and and hear this thread throughout the, the temptations that we're about to jump into. Jesus Christ did not come to sin. He came to become sin. Like He never sins in all of this and has every opportunity to hear me, hear me rightly in this. He could have done any one of these things and actually still been okay because He's God and everything becomes right in God. He could have done any one of these and it would have been fine. But He doesn't. Jesus Christ did not come to sin. He came to become our sin. One other thing that might help with this is the same word that is used for to tempt is the exact same Greek word and it is spelled... P-E-I-R-A-Z-O, P-E-I, that Greek word is actually translated to tempt um, or to test, depending on the context. So you go through and you're doing your own Greek study, and the same word to tempt and the same word to test are one and the same. And God and Satan will often use the exact same incident. God will test us to strengthen us, and Satan will try us or, or tempt us to fail. And so the same moment here is a testing by God by which Jesus overcomes every single time. But it is a temptation from Satan where he is wanting Jesus to fail and he never fails. Okay, so here we go. What's actually going on here? If these are not about us, what are the temptations really, truly about? Matthew 4, 2 through 4, the first temptation says, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, Command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Okay, I know it seems obvious, but what's the temptation? Jesus is hungry. Okay, so the the most obvious temptation is like, Well, feed yourself. The language, and you actually, if you go back, I messed up whenever I was reading it the first time, because at one point I go, If you are the Son of God. That's actually not the meaning of the phrasing there. At no point in the grammatical structuring, my understanding, at no point is it ever like actually that condition of if you are the Son of God, then do this. 
It's rather more like, because you are the Son of God, just turn the stones into bread. Why would you not feed yourself? You have all power to do this. And Jesus could have done it. That's what I don't want you to miss here. Like, he could have done it. He could have fed himself. Like, in in himself, in the man of himself, he could have justified and been okay. Except that that wasn't the will of the Father. The temptation is not about bread alone. It's a temptation to act in his own power. Why is he in the desert? Because God led him to the desert. He's there with no food because he's fasted because the Spirit led him there for this purpose. So the temptation is not really to get the bread so that he can eat the bread. It's to act on his own volition, his own power, his own will. Like that's what's really at stake here. And Satan knows that. He could have absolutely created bread with just a simple, and there's bread. And Satan knew that because because you're the son of God, you have all power. You know you can do this. But also remember, Whenever Jesus hung on the cross, they said, if you are the Son of God, then save yourself. Jesus absolutely could have come down from that cross. It was all within his power. Whenever the guards came to him, they said, uh, or Jesus said, you do realize that I could call down legions of angels and stop all of this. But he doesn't. Whenever he's in the garden and he's praying, he could stop all of it, but he says, Father, not my will, but your will. And in this moment, that's exactly what's on trial. That is the temptation, is to forsake the Father's will for him, which is to be the sinless, spotless Lamb of God who so identifies with his people that he can serve as the high priest forever and ever and ever. He will not act of his own will. Satan's plot is not to question his sonship, but to get him to use his power for his own glory. And we're going to see that over and over again throughout here. I'm going to just summarize it in this way. Because he will fulfill the Father's will, which is the the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things, including us to himself, It wasn't about the bread. It was about the appeal to appease. More necessary than bread was fulfilling the Father's will. Like, that's what's really going on. And then, So he spouts that out. We're going to live by the word of God. Watch what Satan does then. Temptation number two, Matthew chapter four, verses five through seven. Then the devil took him to the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Do you see what he just did? You're going to live by the word of God, not by bread. So here's the word of God. Did you catch that subtlety there? Jesus rebuked him, resisted the first time and said, man shall not live by bread, but by the very word of God, on God's word alone. And so Satan comes back and says, okay, here's God's word. God's word says this, that you won't even stomp your toe, that, if, that he will lift you up. He will not let you be harmed on their hands. They will bear you up. Like here's the holy word. First off, real quick, don't miss this. Satan quotes scripture. Dude, don't miss that. Satan quotes scripture. He knows scripture. He just doesn't believe it. But he can quote it. Second off, 
Satan quotes scripture. Two different perspectives on this. So he quotes scripture. He knows scripture. He just doesn't believe it. Second off, he quotes it. He's quoting from Psalm 91. Okay? In Psalm 91, according to the psalmist, says a person is protected only when he is following the Lord's will. Like that's the perspective of Psalm 91. It's a beautiful psalm. He overshadows us with his wing. He is for us. No pestilence can come against us like that one, like that. Everything is good right there. But that means that we must walk in obedience. Like that's what the psalm is about. All these things of God are true if we walk according to his will. And for Jesus to throw himself down would be to test the Lord, which would be against the will of the Lord. We are to obey, not test. So for him to throw him down would be really to test the reliability of God. Like you say you want to live by Scripture, Jesus. Okay, then here's Scripture. Live by it. Also, if you look, Satan doesn't completely quote the entire verse. He actually leaves out some words like, in all your ways. Like he will protect you in all your ways. Well, by leaving that out, it opens a door for him to testing. But I just want to... The whole premise is, will God really protect you? Sure He will. You're a son. Show it to be true. Live by the very Word of God. The temptation is not about jumping at all. It's about testing God. That's a huge one right there. But y'all, there's a huge distinction to be made between testing God and trusting God. And we are not good at figuring out that line. Praise the Lord that Jesus is. Jesus dwells in His trust of God. He doesn't need to test the Scriptures because He simply knows that they're true. He doesn't need to throw Himself down because He already knows that if He did, that God would catch Him. Why even test it if He says it's true? So that second temptation is really about that idea of let's, let's test God. Let, let's, you want to... Scripture says this, but let's see if it's really true. And it's not a heart of trust, it's a heart of testing. And Jesus shows that he absolutely trusts God to the degree that he will not test him. Temptation three is this one. Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. Actually, I'm pretty sure it's more like, be gone, Satan, or probably even louder. I mean, you're talking about an intense trial. Whenever this, when finally, this final temptation comes, I don't think he's like, be gone, good sir. No, it is a massive exclamation of, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall not, I'm sorry, you shall worship the Lord, and him only shall you serve. He was saying, don't miss what Satan was saying, because I think that this is very massive and Underesteemed by even me in my heart. Satan was saying, I can accomplish the will of God for you, and you can have all the kingdoms of the world right now, and you don't even have to go to the cross. You can have all the nations, and you don't have to suffer. You can have all the glory and not have any pain. I can give it all to you. Now, as good Christians sitting there, and right here, you and I are going, but God is sovereign. Like, they don't really belong to Satan, but they, they do in this moment. Keep in mind 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, which says that Satan, is, and that Satan is called the 
God of this world. In John 12, 31, Jesus refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. In Ephesians 2, 2, Satan is the prince of the power of the air directing the course of this world. In this moment right now, until all reign is fully given over to Jesus Christ in the final climactic battle and reign, in this moment that you and I live in right now, there is a ruler of this world and he is incredibly active and he absolutely hates us and wants to destroy everything that we're doing in here this morning. He wants to do everything that he can to rob, uh, rob the glory of God from us so that we will not profess his great name. He hates us. And Satan, whenever he takes him there, the good Christian in me, I'm like, well, of course Jesus isn't going to do that because those aren't even his anyway. It's a big lie. It's really not. The lie that, that I think exists is that we underestimate the power and the manipulations of Satan. So he takes him up there. And he says, I can give you all of this, everything. And you already know the Father's plan for you, that you will die, that you will be crucified. You already know all that but you can get all those things and never go to the cross. All of this was available and Christ could have had all the world without the cross. Just think about that. We marvel at his death, marvel at the fact that he resists the temptation to give in not only in that moment, but in the garden to pursue his own will, but whenever he hangs on the cross to come down from it, he could have accomplished all these things without ever actually going to the cross, and you and I would have been absolutely destitute and not sitting here today. We take for granted the amazing grace and the amazing strength and the amazing glory of our God. What Satan offered was a path without pain, a path without a cross, a path that offered immediate satisfaction and immediate power, and if that path had been chosen, Jesus would have had to worship the inferior. And that's what he realized. He could have had all things, but he would have been worshiping the inferior. And if he had done that, it would have absolutely thwarted the plan of God by which we have been brought in. The temptation is not simply to bow down and gain the kingdoms, but to absolutely reject God's will and plan. And so what's the conclusion of all this? Chapter 4, verse 11, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Just really simple conclusion real quick. The devil left him. He could not overcome him. He could not stop him, and so he left him. Don't miss that. Like, he goes to the desert. He willingly is tempted, just as he will willingly die. And whenever Satan cannot overcome him, then he has to flee. Jesus gives actuality to what we have in James chapter 4, verse 7, which, and you do need to write this down, like the most applicable part for your life, going from this place today, um, if you're like, well, what about me? Like, where do I fit into this equation? It's in James chapter 4, verse 7. Now, I have a bigger one that I would say pastorally, but we all, we, we need the, the quick one and then we need the big one. But in resisting Satan, we actually get to see James 4, 7 in action, which is very simple. Sorry, there's pages turning and I love it, so I'm going to wait. James chapter 4, verse 7. It says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. 
Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Could do a whole sermon on that. Like pastoral moment to just step into that one where I say, hey, this is something simple you need. Resist the devil and he will flee. Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word of God. And so then there's scripture right there. And then there's the second temptation that comes from Satan to Jesus, where he quotes scripture and then he, he tempts Jesus to test the scripture to see if it's actually true. And Jesus says, no, I'm just going to trust it. I'm asking you to trust this and not test it. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. God's word says it's true. You know what? Therefore, it is true. The problem is that it's not true. It's not that it's not true. The problem is that we don't resist the devil. We indulge, we dance, we cater. Oh, I'm going to just try to really Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We see that here. He didn't run out of tricks. He didn't run out of temptations for Jesus. He realized he was being resistant. There was no way to overcome Jesus in this way. So what does he then begin to do? Orchestrate the rest of the world to crucify him. There's one other part to resist the devil and he will flee from you. And it's the rest of that verse. And it's simply this. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Whenever you submit yourself therefore to God, then you can resist the devil and he will flee from you. But we tend to just resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Resist the devil. Oh no, submit yourself therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. What we have in Jesus Christ in the temptations is one who is completely submitted to God. And therefore, he's able to resist the devil and therefore Satan flees from him. So that's the conclusion here. He was completely, absolutely, wholeheartedly sold out to God. He was there because of God. He endured for God and he glorifies God because of it. I'm going to go back to this before I move on to another concluding point and start to land all this. I mentioned it before, but I don't think, because we, we, we walked through it, we've read it, it's very familiar, like I don't think we grasp the severity and the immensity of the intensity of what was going on here. It took the Lord our Savior, one who is of the mysterious Trinity, He had to fast for 40 days and 40 nights for this spiritual engagement. It's not like me getting up there and saying, oh, I feel like I definitely need to prepare. This is going to be pretty intense. This is on a level we cannot appreciate. There is an intensity crammed into this moment that required him to fast and that at the end required angels to come down and minister to him. There is an exhaustion that underlies all of this. I don't think you and I understand really the eternal consequences that were playing into this and how easy or how tempting it truly could have been for him to simply say as a man, okay. Like not man, little m, but man, like representative of mankind. Like I don't think we understand how severe this actually was and I think that that's worth pausing to note and marvel at. Whenever I said earlier that Jesus could have done any one of these things and in God could have justified them and, been, and everything just been okay, there's a danger in that of going, you just said that he sinning would have been okay. That's not what I mean. I mean, he had the power to turn the stones into bread and eat. He had that power. He had the power 
and the reliability on God that he could have cast himself down and been caught and it would have happened. He could, well, no, he can't do that one. But he could have thwarted God's plan in a different way. Instead of bowing down to Satan, he could have not bowed down to Satan and yet simply say, you know what? I created it all. It's all mine anyway. Therefore, it is mine now. And he could have asserted his own will at that point because he has the power. That's what I want you to understand. So don't mishear what I was saying earlier or we're going to come up with bad theology. I'm saying he has the power to do all those things. And yet he never does because it's not about him alone. It's about God the Father and honoring God the Father and being submissive to God the Father's will. So the conclusion is he submits himself, therefore, to God the Father. He resists the devil. The devil flees. Now watch this. This is, I, this is where I start going, oh, this is really cool. And you might not do that. And I've learned that that's okay. okay? Like I'll work through it. He reverses the curse in this moment. Get this. In Genesis, like so way back in Genesis, we have the first Adam, the beginning of the human race and who sinned. And the Puritans used to teach in Adam's fall, we sinned all. Like it was a catchy little way to teach it to kids that that sin affected us all. It was through Adam that the curse of sin and death entered the world. Adam and Eve gave into temptation, sin spread. In the New Testament, we have Jesus Christ, who is the, quote, last Adam, who came to reverse the curse of sin. The reign of sin that began in the first Adam found its end in the last Adam, Jesus Christ. The first Adam brought death into the world. The last Adam brought life. The first Adam was buried. The last Adam, we are resurrected. In the first Adam, sin was indulged. In the last Adam, sin was resisted. And Satan was defeated. Like what the first Adam set into motion, the last Adam withstood and set into correction. And he begins to reverse the curse that the first Adam began. There is something on such a grander scale than, okay, got that one for the day, and going on. The Bible Knowledge Commentary has this little chart, and, and they, they broke it down in this way. Satan's temptation of Adam and Eve. The appeal to physical appetite was the first temptation. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, he says, you may eat of any tree. He appeals to the physical appetite. And in Matthew chapter 4, you may eat by changing the stones to bread. And there's a complete reversal because one indulges and one does not. There's the appeal to personal gain in the, the second temptation. You will not die. and You will not hurt your foot. You will not die moves them to sin. You will not hurt your foot moves him to submit to the Father's will. They give in. He does not. The appeal to power or glory you will be like God. You have all the world's kingdoms right now that appeal to power or glory, and they give in, and He does not. You and I know how on our own and in our flesh we would fare because we've already done it in them. They, Adam and Eve, were the perfect representatives for the beginning of the human race. We can look back and say, well, why in the world would they do that? Do they not realize? Or if they hadn't, y'all, they are who we would have been. They made the exact same decisions that we would have and that we do. And Christ doesn't. And that's our hope and stay. 
The greatest takeaway for me from this is that the one who identified with sinners by baptism and who will provide righteousness proved he is righteous. Like that should stop our hearts. Just that refining view of Jesus our Lord. He proved that he is righteous. The quality by which he stood in these tests and trials and temptations proves that he is a redeemer worthy to be praised. Proved that he is not like us. He became like us, and yet he did not sin. That's an amazing truth that we get so used to. He could have so easily sinned. And if he had, here's what's on the line, if he had, we would have no hope. We would be destitute. But he withstood. And we sit here today, and praise and honor and glory is going to go to God throughout all of eternity from every nation and tribe and tongue because he withstood these temptations. Two passages to read, and then we're going to pray. Go to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 through 18. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 through 18. It tells us something about our Lord Jesus. It says, Therefore, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Our God, our Lord, became like us in every respect. He knows what it means to suffer when tempted. And therefore, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We do not have a cold and callous God. We have a Savior who is so near. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 15. Last passage. Fourteen through sixteen, sorry. It's a call back to what we started our whole service with. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, hold fast a confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us. He knows what it means to be in the flesh. He clothed himself in it. And in every respect has been tempted as we are. In every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, verse 16 
Let us then, therefore, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you know what we do in light of Jesus' victory over temptation? With confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. Like That's what I see there. Like as I slow down and I read it, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. Y'all, he who had no sin became sin for us so that we can draw near. May we never cease to stand amazed in that. Let's pray. Lord, teach me how to marvel at who you are. To not take for granted the grace that you've given. To not be so presumptive in, in my familiarity with these stories of who you are, this narrative, this biography, and to just kind of pass by. But you, Jesus, fulfilled the Father's will for your life. The plan for the fullness of all time to unite all things in you. It was known from the beginning that you would be crushed for our iniquities, Jesus. And yet you withstood. You fulfilled the Father's plan. Because honoring God, Jesus, is what you did with your life. Lord, teach me to stand amazed over and over again. Not just with this theology that there's a mystery in the Trinity and Jesus died for our sins, but Lord, break my heart again and again so that I understand that there is a God who breathes out stars, who holds all things together, and yet has stooped so near as to hear my voice. Or teach me with confidence to draw near to that throne of grace again and again and stand amazed. Amen.